previously on Popping Collars. This is kind of a romantic time, the 90s. We didn't have cell phones. The internet was around. Thank you, Al Gore, but growing, right? (laughs) It was the birth of the popularity of what would Jesus do? Uh, You know, purity rings, the purity test I remember taking Mm -hmm. in college, right? Uh, I believe uh, Greg Greg failed. Did he fail (laughs) it? Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives in the space between meaning and culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the Director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. Hopefully there will be a Palm Beach, Florida by the time you're listening to this. We'll see. I got no co-host today, so instead we're uh, we're just going to load up on special guests. So first up, uh, back with us again, two shows in a row. We've got Stephen McHale. Welcome, Stephen. Remind us who you are, and what you do. I am the priest at Christ Episcopal Church in Alameda, California. Nice. Uh, Next, we have Richard Burden. Richard, uh, where are you? What are you up to? Hi, Greg. I am the rector of All Saints Parish in Brookline, Massachusetts. Go Sox! Oh, that's right. We have two Sox fans on the show. That's What a segue to our third guest. Uh, Finally... (laughs) We have Dan Joslin Simitowski. Dan, where are you? I know you're not in Boston, but what are you up to these days? Right. So I'm in Austin, Texas, and I am a professor of church history at Seminary Southwest. I'm also the Reverend Doctor, serving as a transitional deacon right now. And Red Sox Nation is everywhere. <laughs> This is episode 70 of uh, Popping Collars, and our topic today is Battlestar Galactica. Every now and then, uh, we like to go back and catch up on pop culture that came out before our show began. And the remake of the sci-fi series Battlestar Galactica, which originally aired in the late 70s following the success of Star Wars and was reimagined in the early 2000s, is uh, one of those shows that really grabs people's imaginations. It's about the destruction of the 12 colonized planets of a solar system far away by a robotic race known as the Cylons. Uh, After nearly being totally wiped out, the remaining humans of that system flee in a small fleet of spaceships led by the titular... Battlestar class warship, the Galactica, in search of the mythical 13th colony, which is Earth. Uh, So, all right, guys, here's the opening question. Did you ever think you would actually enjoy a remake of the cheese fest that was the (laughs) 70s Battlestar Galactica? And what character or episode of the show was the one that hooked you? I think I'm the one of, one of the few among you who is actually old enough to remember the original uh, version of Battlestar Galactica, the cheese fest that was. And I remember just being sort of riveted by how uh, gritty it was and mm-hmm. dark and that they had done a lot of really interesting things with all of the characters like Starbucks, a woman and Boomers, a woman and Baltar was... In the original story, he was just sort of a clear villain. And in this version, he ends up being this odd, quasi-anti-hero, horrible person that you kind of end up rooting for in some cases. Um, So I just thought the whole thing was kind of intriguing. 
Yeah, he wasn't that mustache twirler from yeah, the seventies, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A little more, a little more nuanced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Dan? Was there was there something in particular that grabbed you in this uh, right. battle star? So, I was a latecomer to Battlestar Galactica, yeah. um, and what got me in it was just remembering the context in which it was being aired, which was kind of the second really bad phase of the Iraq War mm-hmm. with the yeah. insurgency. So I was pretty deeply addicted to the political website dailycoast.com as part of my way of dealing with the Bush presidency. And I remember coming across this thread about how the third season of Battlestar Galactica was an allegory for the Iraqi insurgency. And so that just piqued my interest to say, what's the show about? And I really don't think of myself as a science fiction person per se. I'm really a narrative person. So if there's a show that has a good, strong narrative, I'm, I'm going to get in there. Um, what about you, Stephen? I came later to Dan and this because uh, I watched it all on Hulu. Uh, and wow. I do have to set the scene. I watched it while riding a real bicycle on rollers in my bathroom in my condo. Uh, and if I, if I lost concentration, I would literally crash because the thing was balanced. So I had to be very focused. Um, <laughs> And I was really intrigued by the, um, again, the religion. I, and I think the um, sort of slow argument between monotheism and polytheism, that they turn it around and it's the robots who are the monotheists. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think like, like you guys, I, I kind of found the show after it had already been up and running. Uh, what ended up hooking me was the relationship and what Richard brought up about uh, Gaius Baltar. It was this relationship between Baltar and Caprica 6 that he has, which I guess we should say that not all the robots look like robots. Some of the robots look like people. This is a, this is a beautiful woman who only Baltar can see, and we're not sure if, he's, if she's real or if she's a vision or if she's something supernatural. Um, and I just thought that that was fascinating because it was it was a way of a villain being a villain and yet you understood what his purpose was and like what his motivation was as a character apart from just doing bad things he was doing self-preservation things uh with the guidance of this of this vision i it was one of the few i think i still think it is one of the few shows that deals with faith in a really straightforward way I mean, there were a lot of TVs. There's been a lot of TV shows that there's been the touched by the angel and the highway to heaven and my personal favorite, Joan of Arcadia, that sort of deals with faith and the mis- uh, and the mystical in tries to deal with them in sort of straight on ways. And Battlestar really went at it kind of head on and took faith, the faith of the characters seriously, which was really interesting and also was able to um, allow things to be a mystery, didn't feel the need to explain everything. So even at the end of the series, you know, well, is Starbuck uh, an angel? Is Starbuck that we don't really know what Starbuck is? And we don't really know what that vision of Caprica 6 is in Baltar's head or, or the vision of Baltar in... Caprica Six's head. Yeah, I think that that was one of the real treats for me of getting in. You know, even though the the allegory part of the war was interesting, once you start from the beginning, you're like, oh, there's this whole weird religious dimension here, and part of that um, is trying to figure out where you are in the narrative. 
Um, so I was thinking today about the fact that the humans created the Cylons and then the Cylons rebel. And we are, I'm naturally supposed to be on the human side, but in this case, the humanish predicament is shared by the Cylons. Um, and in fact, so trying to explain some of this to my nine-year-old today was very confusing. Because he was asking me who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And my answers were all ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Well, it also raises mm-hmm. the question of the ambiguity of monotheism, right? Because you look at somebody like a, a Brother Cavill, who, like, I just hated that guy. Like, there was never a moment <laughs> where they're like, yeah, Brother Cavill, he's really talking sense. And so that, that kind of really zealous monotheism. And, and how do you modulate monotheism so at some level it's not an exclusionary or eliminationist perspective, right? Like, that's one of the, I think, questions that Battlestar was raising, I mean, that's a great point, Dan, because then you also get into this idea of, I mean, the the Cylons were the monotheists and the humans were the polytheists. And the the show starts with the Cylons trying to wipe out humanity, um, trying to destroy them. Uh, And so you really, I mean, it just, it just, it's just these echoes of the biblical narrative where you have a monotheistic culture moving into moving into what we know of as Israel and con- you know, going through conquest, right? Um, mm-hmm. Taking over the land in the name of their one God. And I think that the show intentionally tried to echo that. Well, this also has me thinking about, um, this was mentioned kind of in our pre-show discussion, the, uh, the Mormon roots of this Battlestar narrative mm. and how that complicates things because part of the story of Mormonism is being hounded by God-fearing monotheists, right? I mean, the story of Mormonism in America is just a slaughter from, you know, Illinois all the way over to Utah and, you know, expulsions all the way along so that Utah, this desert, becomes their promised land. Mm-hmm. Much like the barren space becomes this place of safety for Battlestar Galactica. Um, and, you know, obviously Mormons would kind of themselves as monotheists in their own way, but they also have this really complex and rich narrative that has a story of exile and exodus that isn't just the Israelite one, but is their own. When we're talking about gray areas and, and stories that kind of complicate who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and, and things like that, you know, it just makes me think of, you know what it makes me think of guys. It makes me think of professional wrestling and <laughs> <laughs> obviously, and the fact that the easiest story to tell is here's the, here's your hero and yeah. here's your dastardly villain and you want to cheer for your hero and you want to boo your villain. And I just wonder if our brains are geared that way. It's like, well, th- here are the good guys. So it doesn't matter what they do. They are good. And here are the bad guys. And it doesn't matter what they do. They are bad. Like our do our brains just just see a story and start to categorize people right away? That's certainly how tribalism seems to work. And we're hearing a lot of that <laughs> right. these days. Yeah. And Twitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I th- yeah, I think that is how our brains work. And I think it's, uh, it's part of the work of faith and religion to help us learn how to undo that, mm. which we don't always do well. But... Um, that seems to me to be the the kind of core of what we're we as faith leaders are to be about is to help people to sort of see their way into that kind of non dual 
thinking that does come so very, very naturally to us. And something like Battlestar really does help in certain ways because everybody is ambiguous. There is no pure good person. And even, you know, even Baltar, who you really want to hate, kind of end up not hating as much as you would like to. And and even like even like a paragon of virtue on this show, because I'm thinking of Laura Roslin, mm-hmm. right? Um who I think is 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 very sympathetic to the audience right out of the blocks because she has cancer. She's right. the secretary of education who somehow, because all of humanity is wiped out, becomes the president of these colonies while they're in the wilderness. And you know, she's she's just presented as a character who's like all she has are good intentions and she's looking out for humanity and she's trying to get them to where they're, where it is that they need to go and keep their, keep their, their fleet together as well as she can. And yet she has, she does not hesitate in sending people out of an airlock. If Mm -hmm. she thinks that they have committed some grievous sin against humanity. And there's Colonel Adama, who's like this, the, the obvious patriarch of the whole event who, has this very quiet power about him, right? He never really yells. Um, he's both benevolent and firm. Yeah, he too is challenged and brought to the breaking point a number of times. Laura Roslin becomes like like an oracle, but he always seems to operate and remove from that. Where the only thing that matters for him is the duty to his mission and the duty to humanity. Yeah, so he does fall in love with Laura Roslin as. They're sympathetic to her. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, he, he, he is dealing with mortality on the frontier. And I think that that's a, that's, that's not necessarily what he thought he was. I I don't think that's who he thought he was until that's what he was, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the shepherd of this community trying to get them to the promised land. It makes me it makes me wonder because this is a big part of of the of our sort of biblical roots, right? The the stories that we claim early on deal with a people who are driven from their homeland, who are trying to return to that homeland, and for that generation, it is a myth for them. Mm-hmm. And it just it, it makes me wonder: is this something that's foundational? This idea of a community that's constantly moving constantly in search of a home. I think the show worked because it engaged with myth. And in in both show detail saying, yes, we're talking about myth making and we're going to show you how people go about living according to these myths that animate them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why the narrative drew people in. I think that's why the sequel Caprica really didn't work. Because it had none of the myth-making aspect. It was much more about a morality tale around technology. I just, uh, for the record, I loved Caprica and wanted it to continue, and I felt shortchanged that it just ended. Yeah. Right. I'm surprised yeah. that's more about you. <laughs> uh, <probably>. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, but, but seriously, I, I think we're all looking for, for myth-making narratives, right? I think most cultures have a narrative about finding home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the, I mean, the, the story of the explorer trying to find their place is more compelling than the story of society trying to build itself on the city's foundations. You know, it's just not, 
it's not the same. It's there's more adventure. There's more right. excitement. Yeah, the, 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 something over the horizon to look for. Right, and, and that's why the Odyssey is taught in high school and not the Aeneid. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, is this, is that why? Gosh, I'm just I'm I'm and now all of a sudden I'm getting flooded with these with these images of you know Jesus uh, being baptized and then wandering into the wilderness and um, you know Paul's journeys all over Kingdom Come, sort of spreading the gospel. Just a sense of and and you know even Scripture just sort of saying like the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, right? Like this idea of just constant motion and constant searching and constant looking over the horizon at what's to come. It's this sort of being here and, you know, living into what's, what's going to be. I had a slightly different take on it. I, I think. Um, So the first time I watched when it was first on um, and it was this sort of metaphor for the Iraq war. And that was, you know, that was very engaging. And then I, went back and rewatched it recently um, after the 2016 election. And the, on one level, all of that sort of metaphor for Iraq war, the kind of just war questions that were being raised seemed almost kind of quaint to me. Like, Oh yeah. Remember when we had all of those arguments about whether torture was really a good idea or not. And of course it's not, but we had all those arguments about it, but now those seem less cutting to me than they did uh, the first time I watched it. What did seem really, really cutting was the, um, was this exile notion. And I think in part because Christianity, I mean, on the one hand, Western Christianity has had a kind of progressive viewpoint. Let's keep moving towards the next um, horizon and that's all great and good and wonderful. But we've also had this vision of us being the city on the hill, right? And we're going to be this beacon and we're going to be this great thing. And I think a lot of my sense is that a lot of the folks that I live and minister with here in the very blue Northeast woke up several mornings in November last year thinking that the world that they had known was no longer the world that they were living in. And so that sense of exile had a deeper, a deeper resonance. Now that's a very, a lot of people in this country have felt that way for a very long time. And so the elites of the Northeast are sort of late to the party for that. In the confines of the show set up, did you ever have a sense that earth wasn't a paradise? Because it, it seemed like it was, if they were going to find this place, it was going to be the garden. Like they were going to get right. back to the garden if they found it. Yeah, I just, I, I wonder if uh, when we do this myth making, if we sort of predicate it on this belief that, yeah, we've got this myth of Earth is going to be there and we're going to get there um, and everything is going to be perfect the problem with the problem with that is that that's like, that's never true. Like mm-hmm. even if they get to earth, it's still going to be them on earth and all of the issues and all of the problems that they had in the wilderness is still going to be there in, right. in the space that they move into. Uh, some of what you're saying there sounds a little bit like kingdom of God language, Greg, oh. the, um, it's here and it's not quite here. And mm-hmm. 
will be there and will still be sort of here and it's now and it's in the future, right. uh, which is endlessly frustrating, I think, when, mm-hmm. and well, from one perspective, endlessly frustrating when you want more certainty and it forces us to change the way we live now if we are to become that here um, rather than waiting for this new Eden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and the catchphrase, you know, this has happened before and it's going to happen again. And this already not yet stance. I mean, there, there is a sense in which most of the main characters at some point have to move into faith. Mm-hmm. They have to embrace some kind of mystery. Like, you know, are these chosen ones really chosen ones? Can we really trust the oracles? Is this place Earth going to be worth going to? You know, the whole kind of culmination of the series is people just stepping out into mystery or into faith in ways that aren't trite. I mean, they're, they're really about, like, the ultimate things. Like, their very survival depends on these actions. Um, I think that's where the show, again, gets some of its real power. But it's not like you're going to make it and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Right. Like, I I feel like like that's the trap that we fall into, like, um, you know, not to place blame on our evangelical, you know, brethren in the faith, but like growing up in the South and hearing, you know, this idea of like, oh, it's going to be great. Like the rapture is going to happen and everything will be perfect and blah, blah, blah. And it's all like, okay, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like none of this matters because perfection is just over the horizon. And so all I have to do is just, last long enough to make it to there, you know, like that's the, that's the fault. I think Um, it's, 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 it's narratives like that. And it's myths like that, that um, create a scenario where you don't care what happens to this planet, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's really dangerous. This is, you know, where a Jewish vision of redemption is really powerful because you're expected to work towards this greater good. And there's always a sense of the incompleteness of whatever the good is you're working towards. There's always more to be done. And that prevents you from resting on your laurels. And, you know, again, look at the Mormons when they get to Utah. Like, Utah's not so great in 1950. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like, we're going to build a whole civilization. The water is pretty salty. Yeah, pretty salty. (laughs) But it becomes what what they call the beehive state, right? Because they just work. There's there were bees. <laughs> they brought them, with and there them. were seagulls. <laughs> All right, Dan. So you were talking earlier about narrative, mm-hmm. and uh, I think about this often um, with our churches. So we've created a pretty rich discussion about theology out of a science fiction TV show. Um, in a way that um, sneaks under the radar and allows a pretty wide audience to deal with these questions. Um, So I'm curious if you all have any uh, thoughts about how we can do that better with our, with the resources through our church that we have in our churches Mm. or in our seminary down there. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I think is simply to like name our narratives. What I like best in, in preaching is when preaching goes back to the texts, right? Talks about these narratives. Mm-hmm. Talk about these narratives are meaningful. Talk about the meaning we can gain from them. And where we stop worrying so much about relevance or the st- right. or story we want to tell, right? 
so, so that's one thing, right? Embrace the biblical narrative for the power it has, right? Mm-hmm. And make good, popular media that reflects the narrative. Well, are you saying the church, the church doesn't do that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> except, except for the Mormons. Apparently the Mormons make good, popular media. Right? Well, <laughs> but don't be honest about it. But, you know, it's actually hard to pull off. Yeah. It turns out. Man, I, you know, so uh, yeah. one of our early, early episodes in season three of Popping Colors this past season, we had Patricia Lyons on to talk about Harry Potter. Um, and she she made this brilliant um, insight, I thought, which is that the, the human brain is wired for epic narrative, like grand mm-hmm. narrative. Like we want these stories and we want them to connect and we want to make sense out of them and make meaning out of them for our lives. Like we just need to we just need to be invited into the worlds of these epic narratives. And I think that's what you're talking about, Dan, this idea of the preacher is the inviter. Right. The, I, the person who says, here's the text. Here's what it means for our lives. Come with me and explore this with me. Right. In our communities. Let's mm-hmm. see what we can do together. Right. And I think, I mean, if we're all in-house here as Episcopalians and Anglicans, I think our tradition is really great at creating rich, vivid, creative narratives. I think J.K. Rowling identifies as part of that grand tradition. Right. Mm-hmm. So you got, you know, the, the three great narrative storytellers of the 20th, 21st century were Lewis, Tolkien, and Rowling, right? Like all Anglican. Uh, I believe L. Ron Hubbard, you've missed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but even that, even Dianetics works, right? It, it, that was a fantastical narrative that people buy into. Well, and remembering that the stories are powerful because they they address these kind of basic questions that we all have, who am I? What is my purpose in the world? Why, why am I here? And our, our ancestors in the faith had, had some thoughts about that and some, um, some provisional answers. And I think we run into problems when we start thinking that we have the, we figured out what the answer is. Cause as Dan points out, there's always sort of more to do. There's always a, a deeper question to ask, but as long as we can somehow help people, understand that the questions that they have that they bring to it um, are legitimate and really no different than the questions that the people who were living through it are, were asking. Yeah. All this has happened before. All this. And it will all happen again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Robots. I used to know. We have one final segment that we have to do. It's called the staff picks. And staff picks. This is something that we started for season three because we uh, we missed the days of the blockbuster uh, videos 
when we could just put our um, picks up on a wall and you could choose, are you a Dan person or are you a Richard person based on your taste? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so what we've been doing is uh, going through and just sort of uh, introducing people to things that we've been finding uh, in the pop culture landscape. And so my pick uh, this time, I'm due up for the pick this time. And my pick is a podcast. I'm going to recommend somebody else's podcast for a chance. Uh, so listen to us and then go listen to these guys. It's a podcast called True Story. T-R-U-U Story. S-T-O-W-R-A-Y. True Story. Uh, and if you get that reference at all, then you know that that is a reference to the real world, uh, which is a, a TV show, maybe the first reality show. Uh, from the 90s um started in 1992 because they're doing the first season right now and it's hosted by uh dave holmes who was a vj for mtv back in the day and uh co-hosted by mike dotty dave holmes and mike dotty they're going through the first season of the real world right now and what i love about this podcast is how you can make up your mind about a piece of pop culture sometimes. And that's the reality that you live with moving on for the rest of your life. And, uh, and um, the real world, especially because those, the people that they cast on that show were really just kind of archetypes of like, here's this guy, here's this modely white guy. And here's this country girl from Alabama um, and all of that stuff. Well, one of the one of the uh, things that uh, the hosts of the show say, and that I remember, is that there was a writer on the show named Kevin, who was a black man, and for whatever reason, the memory of Kevin is usually that he was angry, that he was angry, and that he talked about race a lot. Uh, and in rewatching mm. the show, what the hosts are discovering is that Kevin was not angry. Kevin was naming things that existed in the world in a way that no one was, no one was talking about and no one was, uh, mm really even able to see or engage with. And so, um, so they're recording this in the aftermath of Charlottesville and, and stuff like that going on and really realizing that there are so many echoes coming back from this sort of, you know, throwaway MTV show from 1992 that uh, we're seeing play out on Twitter and in towns uh, right now here in the U S and Hmm. it's, it's really neat to sort of listen back to. So if you get a chance, listen back to true story. Um, So let me do our closing piece real fast. You can find popping collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash poppingcollars or on Twitter at poppingcollars. Um, you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, any of those places. All we ask is that you subscribe, rate and review our show. That way more folks will find us. Um, but you can find us That's on awesome, com, uh, which features our uh, show each and every time. We love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. And with that, that is Popping Collars for this time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on the show. We will see you next time and keep those collars pops. Mm-hmm.